Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. It's time for us to talk about something that may not be quite so comfortable when it comes to COVID-19 and the pandemic, its return to work. As the U.S. begins to reopen, we all have a lot of questions about our future and what our future really looks like. So we're here to hopefully answer those for you today. My name is David Miller, Chief Revenue Officer at the Zero Card, and I will be uh, you're answering your questions and, and fielding your questions today, not answering. Dr. Schwartz will be doing that. But during our time together, we'll be taking questions from you on COVID-19 and the path ahead. Please use the Q&A feature within Zoom to ask your questions. And remember, no question is too big and no question is too small. So allow me to introduce and thank my teammate and infectious disease expert, Dr. Stan Schwartz, for joining us today. Good morning, Stan. Morning, David. Things are going well here, and I'm still dreaming about my next haircut. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of us are doing that right now. So uh, we're super excited uh, to talk about return to work. I know it's something that we've been fielding a ton of questions on over the, the course of really the last maybe you know, 15 to 30 days. So uh, you know, if you're ready, should we just dive in? I'm all ready. Okay. First one is anonymous. So uh, it seems like forever ago. That, they, that we learned there was a case of a person who had no symptoms, but did infect another person who did become sick. Is there any further medical proof or documentation of this happening? And if so, how likely is it to happen? That's a really good question. And the answer is we're learning a lot more as we're doing more testing. What we used to know was the people that got sick because those are the ones who got tested when we had limited testing we would test people that got exposed. And that's how we kind of determined, you know, what the prevalence of COVID was. But now that we're doing more, <laughs> I've got a cat walking on my desk here. Now that we <laughs> He's curious about return to work as well. Excuse me just a moment, folks. <laughs> now that we're doing testing on, on non-symptomatic people, we're learning that there are a whole lot more people that have COVID that don't have symptoms or have symptoms that are so minimal, like uh, you know, alteration of smell or taste, that they don't realize they have the infection. So it was two publications recently. One said that maybe a third of people who have COVID infections are non-symptomatic. But another publication said it might be closer to 80%. So what we know is it's significant. The importance of it is two things. One that people that have no symptoms are still able to spread. And some of the people we call them super spreaders because they have no symptoms, but they are in a big group. It's a hairdresser that you know takes care of 20 or 30 people in a week uh, and they can spread the infection without realizing it. The second though factor is that people that don't have symptoms probably have a little bit less in terms of virus, being shed, so they perhaps may be less infectious. But again, because they're not sick, 
they assume that they're well and may not take good precautions. Sounds good. That makes, makes perfect sense. Hey, and at least we know this is live. Where else can you get an infectious disease doctor and his cat at the same time? At the same time. <laughs> hey, this next one's actually for me. It says, I, I, I had the antibody test a week ago. So I read a lot of different opinions about the antibody test, exactly who should get it. And if you have it, does it mean you're immune to getting COVID? And then I can go back to work. I mean, can you help kind of clear that up? I mean, I was negative. So I kind of was kind of hoping I was positive. But if you test positive, does it mean you're clear and good to go? Boy, that's something that has changed dramatically in the last few weeks. So the answer to your question, who should get the antibody test? Right now, the recommendation is nobody should get the antibody test that's outside of public health surveillance, outside of a study, so to speak. And why is that? Two reasons. First is that the antibody test right now has not been refined enough that it has that much sensitivity and specificity, except when it's done in certain, you know, high-tech labs. These finger stick tests turned out to be, most of them just be terrible. So the test may tell you that you had a COVID infection, but a negative test doesn't tell you you didn't have one. The second thing is the presence of antibodies, we think, confers some degree of immunity, but we don't know how much or how long, or even if it does make you immune. So think about this, David. If you have an antibody, any medical test that you have done should be done because it will help you make a decision. The COVID antibody test is not going to help you make a decision on whether or not you had it because you can have a false positive test from other COVID, COVID, uh, coronavirus infections. And it's not gonna make a difference in how you behave because we don't know that having antibodies makes you immune. The thought was a positive antibody test would be like having a passport to go back to work. That doesn't have scientific basis right now. So we're recommending antibody tests only if they're part and parcel of some kind of a public health uh, initiative. So basically what you're saying is I wasted $129. Not necessarily. There's, you could have wasted <laughs> it in other ways. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, James from Tulsa. Uh, I read that most people who get the coronavirus don't have any symptoms. Is that really true? And, and as I said earlier, that probably is the case that uh, uh, illnesses with very low levels of symptoms that you may not even detect. You know, I just don't feel real well today and things don't taste good, you know, may not clue you that you have coronavirus infection. I think that's so important because, you know, what we saw this last weekend that, you know, picture you've seen on television of the gathering in the Ozarks and uh, the, what, the gathering in, uh, in Florida. People just don't understand that you may be infected and spreading the infection without knowing it. And that's why the mask and the social distancing is so important. Well, that's a good question. I mean, there was a lot of people in those pools that, you know, they're in the water, you know, in a, almost a bar setting, but outside, does that matter? Outside is probably better than inside because ventilation, you know, the, a single virus particle isn't going to get you an infection. A million virus particles probably will. So there's, you know, different shades of gray in the middle of that. 
the thing is that, as, we, as you know, we shed the virus when we talk, when we laugh, when we sing. We learn that with the, the choir that got infected as a result of one person having the infection when we cough and sneeze. But as the virus leaves you, wind disperses it and it becomes potentially less infectious, especially the further you are away. Of course, you'd like to be upwind from somebody that's infected, but you don't always know that. Right. Uh, and again, this is one reason why wearing the mask is so important if you're close to somebody. Okay. Makes sense. So Tristan from Denver. Uh, so in many places we began to read. So then a few weeks goes by, we haven't had a large number of infections. Maybe, maybe the infections are still going down. Should we really be worried about the so-called second wave? Wow, what a good question that is. And you know, we opened up most, every state has now had some degree of opening this month. And you know, some states were open for already two or three weeks. And you know, some states are having a little bit of an uptick, but think about this. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, somebody said, would you rather have $10,000 today or a penny every day for a month where you doubled it? You know, the second day you had two pennies and the next day you had four pennies and the next day you had eight pennies. You remember that brain teaser? And it turned out, you know, if you got the penny a day that doubled, you'd have a, you know, a million dollars at the end of the month. Right. It's the same thing with the coronavirus infection. The first death in this country was on February the 6th. 112 days later, 112 days later, we had 100,000 deaths. We went from one to 100,000, but the curve went up at the end. And that's the same thing that's going to happen. We won't see the effects of what happened in early May until maybe mid, late June, July, August. And again, the thing, all the infectious disease and the epidemiologists worry about is the cat's out of the bag at that point. I'm sorry about that expression. <laughs> um, well, I saw Dr. Fauci this morning actually talking about um, the fact that we don't have to have a second wave, but we still have to keep doing the things that we're doing today to prevent that. I mean, any, any other wisdom there? The complacency that people have right now is, and again, to quote Dr. Fauci, you know, it looks like we did too much because things are getting better. Was it getting better because we did too much? Right. And I think that, you know, expecting things to get, stay better without behavioral change is, is a fraught decision. This, you know, as somebody said on TV last night, you know, the, the, the control over this pandemic is all about behavior. It's not going to be about medicine and it's not going to be about vaccine until an effective vaccine comes out. And we also heard a recent poll that if there is an effective vaccine, you know, less than 50% of people are going to take it. Right. So we've got a way, way to go on this road. Agreed. And just as a reminder, we have a lot of great questions coming in. Please continue to use the Q&A feature. Uh, to ask your questions. Uh, the next one is really good one's from Brian. He said, I'm a CEO of a company with 200 employees that can work remotely successfully. I have a third of my employee population who want to stay home indefinitely, a third of my team who want to get back in the office of ASAP, and a third of my team who just want to do what, it, what we tell them to do. So what should I tell them? 
I wonder how many of that third that wants to get back to work as quick as possible has more than two kids at home. <laughs> Probably almost 100%. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think every company needs to do what we call a hazard assessment. And you know, we did that at the zero card. And it's simply a walk through the office and you think about, you know, where are the hazards for coronavirus spread? You know, at the zero card offices, most of us can walk up the stairs. We don't have to do the elevator, which is, you know, one at a time in an elevator. You know, we have that big jug of popcorn that everybody shares. That's got to be gone. We've got a couple people working in the same office. Probably not a good idea to have people in that close proximity, especially in, in you know, when windows are closed and air conditioning is going on, so there's less fresh air going in. Every company needs to do their own assessment and needs to find, if they don't have the capability of doing it, needs to find somebody that does. And then draw up a plan. The CDC has wonderful resources. If you go to the CDC's website, just Google cdc.gov coronavirus and you'll get there. Wonderful uh, guidance for opening for businesses, for churches, for uh, public events and so forth. But it's a hazard assessment that has to be done. And the other thing, too, is it's important to have employers to encourage employees to self-identify if they have uh, predisposing conditions. One, of course, is age, above the age of 60 or 65. The other, though, are asthma, diabetes, significant obesity, any history of heart disease or chronic lung disease or immunosuppression or taking certain drugs that uh, immunosuppress you may be risk factors. So, you know, within all the confines of the Americans for Disability Act and privacy, it's important that, that if an employee can work at home and they do have a, you know, a significant predisposing condition that they stay at home. It's not easy, is it? <laughs> no, it's not easy, but it, it, it's gonna be a new way of thinking for a while. Here's, an, here's another great question. And actually, this was a good one for me too. As you know, I travel almost every week. Um, so do you think it's a good idea for employers to require employees to quarantine for 14 days if they have to travel out of state? So I guess we could look at it two ways. Like next week I'm driving to Tulsa. Uh, the, I, I plan on going to Phoenix, flying to Phoenix sometime in June. Do I need to be worried about others around me? I think if you're driving to a low risk area, an area that's not a hot zone and you're able to take precautions and you're able to you know, be in places that are lower risk, for example, if you're going to Phoenix, you know, and it's not too hot, you may want to have a meeting outside. Right. Be a whole lot better than being in a small room with a bunch of people. So I think it's all going to be a risk and reward equation you've got to make. If you're flying and you've got to take two flights to go through an airport, you know, with, with the flights being cut down and people starting to travel, we're going to see planes being more crowded. What we don't know right now is exactly how safe air travel is. But it makes sense that being alone in a car with the windows down is probably safer than being with 139 people in a metal tube that's sealed up. So I think it's probably safe to say that I should 100% of the time wear a mask if I'm going to get on a plane. 
Yeah, and I'm disappointed that that mask wearing has not become not become mandatory on airplanes. So I wish that it were. More to come on that then. Um, here's another antibody test. But I think we should ask it. We might have answered it, but just to maybe a different spin. So if employers want to do antibody testing, so employers, should we have to go through this testing? Because we've heard in some cases, or maybe most cases, it's not uh, credible. And again, if you're doing the antibody test to decide what part of your workforce can come back, you're not acting on, on current scientific evidence because we don't know that a positive antibody test means that you have enough antibodies to protect you or even that you have antibodies that are effective at fighting the virus. You know, let's go back to the example with HIV. You know, HIV, patients who have HIV, people with HIV make antibodies, but those antibodies have no effect against the virus. So until we can show that, the, that having a certain level of antibodies gives you immunity, I don't think the antibody test is useful in making those decisions. Again, only do medical tests when they're gonna give you the information you need to make a decision about this versus that. Okay, here's a good one from Fred and you might wanna get your cat back to answer this one, so this is a tough one. Uh, what legal risk do I face if I open up my office and we get an outbreak in our workforce also, what happens if we get an outbreak and someone actually passes away? You know, that question comes up all the time in the influenza season. And generally, the risk to, the risk to an employer, and, and, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but I can tell you from experience how this generally works. Um, it, would, it would be necessary to be able to show that, that you got the infection as a consequence of your going to work and as a consequence of an employer negligence. Those things are gonna be pretty tough. And you look right now at the meatpacking industry, you know, look out in the panhandle of Oklahoma in Guymon, which is a small town in, in far Western Oklahoma that had almost no coronavirus infection. They were even written up, Reuters News Service had a story about people who moved from California to Guymon, Oklahoma to get away from all of this. They turn out to have a hotspot now because of their meatpacking plant. I think it's pretty fair to assume that people that work in a meatpacking plant and have gotten the infection before it became widespread in the community, you know, can believe that it came from the employer, but in general, it's gonna be pretty tough to say you got it as a result of here versus there, unless somebody came to work and you know they were sick and the employer said, no, you gotta stay here at work and not go home. If an employer, it's really important for employers to have that kind of a fair leave policy where they don't either encourage people or make it difficult for them not to work when they're sick. Very important for employers. Yeah, again, that's just a tough one. And yeah, I, that, that would be hard to prove. But at the same time, I think you're right. Employers do need to just be very open to, you know, people still continue to work from home if they want to. Exactly. Here's a questions are great. There's tons more coming in. So here's one. I was sick at the end of February. I went to urgent care because my doctor wanted me to get a chest x-ray. I was running a low fever. 
my body ached terribly. I could barely walk around. The doctor said I had a virus and gave me a prescription for prednisone. I got better quickly. Is there a way for me to find out if I did have the coronavirus and if I built up immunity from that sickness? First comment I'd make is that prednisone is not considered to be a standard treatment for virus infections. And we also know that, that steroids like prednisone, we call the glucocorticoids, are not recommended now for treating COVID infections. Um, I think it's important to recognize with COVID that the recovery time is actually pretty long. People that have a significant degree of infection, the ones who wind up going to the hospital may, may actually be sick for three to four weeks afterwards. And people that get very sick, you know, that require high flow oxygen or require the use of a ventilator uh, may have impairment of lung function for weeks to months afterwards and actually require what we call pulmonary rehabilitation. Going back to work after you're sick, the CDC recommends that it be at least 14 days after the onset of your symptoms, not the day you got exposed, but the onset of your symptoms, 14 days after the onset of symptoms, and you have to be free of fever for at least three days, not using any Tylenol or fever reducing medication. Now, one of the puzzles right now is that people that get well may still shed some virus particles from the nose if they get swab tests, but it's felt that after 14 days, that just represents disintegrated viruses and not active viruses that could cause infection of another person. Gotcha. So a good two weeks. Okay. I think we have time for maybe one more, Stan, and this is kind of back to the second wave. And I think we just, we'll go ahead and ask this question because we need to emphasize it because I think there's still a lot of questions around it. So as you, we all know, there's several predictions of the second wave. Do you believe these predictions are based on everything going back to completely normal, i.e. no social distancing, you know, 100% capacity at restaurants, you know, everything opening back up? Or are the predictions based on the country still practicing social distancing, wearing face masks, uh, et cetera? And so, once you give that answer, how should I plan? And this is what everybody wants to know. We've touched on it. How should I plan to reopen my office based on the possible second wave? You know, as, as someone famous once said, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> the problem here is that we don't know if it's going to be a second wave or a peak at the end of the first wave. Um, again, a lot of what's happened is probably due to several factors. Number one, behavior. People did social distance. People did wear masks. Now a lot of people aren't distancing and aren't wearing masks. The second is we know with virus infections, being in close confined spaces, as happens in the winter, is more conducive to one person spreading to another. Now it's summer. We're out more, better ventilation. We tend less more humidity in the air, which actually helps to reduce the infectivity of, of virus particles. So as the weather gets cooler after the summer, as we get back inside, there may be another peak. Whether we're gonna get a second wave or not, I'm not sure, it may be a continuous thing. I think a lot of experts now are believing that we're going to see a continuous low level of virus infection that may get worse as the weather gets colder 
or as behavior becomes less intense, people stop following the guidelines, they get comfortable, complacent, and all of a sudden, the things that we did to get us to a good place are getting us back to a bad place. Makes, makes sense. Well, Stan, I think we have to wrap up. I can't believe we've had six editions of Stan TV, and, and we really appreciate your time and, and your insight. I know that you know it's been hugely impactful, hugely valuable, and I know on behalf of our team, we sincerely hope that all of you guys listening out there um, appreciate having access to an expert uh, in the field and that it's been valuable as we navigate COVID-19. You know, so for more information, if, there, if you guys have more questions, uh, we have a chat capability where questions are answered live. You can go to uh, the zerocard.com forward slash COVID-19, the zerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. Ask any question. Remember, no question is too big. No question is too small. They'll be answered uh, extremely timely. So keep those questions coming in. On behalf of Dr. Stan Schwartz, our Chief Medical Officer, and myself, David Miller, the Chief Revenue Officer of the Zero Card, we thank you and hope to see you again in two weeks, same time, same place. Take care and stay healthy. Thanks, Stan. Thanks, David. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out. <laughs>